as we gather to watch our children be baptized, I am reminded that we have parents and grandparents and brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles who've come today. If you're a parent, grandchild related, friend of one of these that was baptized and are here today to celebrate that with us, would you stand and just let us celebrate with these families? Wonderful, yeah. Thank you. I see the, the foster family back there. Michelle graduated Friday night. Gavin baptized this morning. Alex graduates this afternoon. Y'all have a busy weekend. We're glad you're here. Yeah, that's great. It's Mother's Day, and so I'd like to share a, a few thoughts, certainly to, to moms, but also to all of us. So if you're not a mom, that doesn't mean you can check out today. Uh, it means we get to listen in on, and then we get to apply in our own lives. So I want to start with a little quiz today. We're going to talk about some Old Testament mothers. So let's, Phil, let's get that screen up there. We're going to ask you, these are some of the Old Testament mothers. Who was uh, Sarah's child of promise? Isaac, did I hear Isaac? I hope so. What about Rachel? Who was Rachel's? We're going out of order. We're going to mess you up. Joseph and Benjamin. What about Rebecca? All right, Tara, remember? Gay? Yeah, Isaac and Esau, right? Jacob and Esau. I'm sorry, Isaac was a dad. Jacob and Esau, twins. What about Hannah? Samuel. Of course, if we think about it, we, maybe we'll remember that all four of these mothers shared something else in common besides being a mother. They were all barren at one point in their, their, their lives. And they struggled and they, they offered prayers and cried out to God that, that God would hear their prayer and that God would answer their prayer. And God did. And each of these women were blessed with children. Today I want us to, to talk about another mother. In fact, it's, it's a mother that we don't know her name. Now, now there's some... Uh, Old Testament uh, commentaries and, and things like that that came later on that try to, to give Samson's mother a name, but the Scripture doesn't reveal a name for Samson's mother. And her story is told in Judges chapter 13. So I want us to turn there today. And uh, the chapter is 25 verses, uh, particularly for us, for today anyways. I want us to, to look at the first 24 verses. We don't have time to read all of those, but, but we do have time to read a portion of this, this text. And so I would encourage you to, to be familiar and become familiar with the story of Samson's mother. It begins in verse 1. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now remember, this is the book of Judges, and so we're in the midst of this cycle of Judges where God's people rebel, they turn from God, they cry out to God in their sin and their brokenness. God hears their prayer, and He raises up a judge, a, a deliverer, to come and to save and redeem God's people. And here we are Again, the sons of Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord so that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah of the family of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren. She had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold now, you are barren and have no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore, 
Be careful not to drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistines. And then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask him from where he came, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son, and now you shall not drink, or you shall not drink wine or strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing, for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. And then Manoah entreated the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you have sent Come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. Now the angel of the Lord comes back, and we want to pick up the story in verse 17. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? So that when your words come to pass, that we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask for my name, seeing that it is so wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, and he, this angel of the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. For it came about when the flame went up from the altar toward heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. And when Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord did not appear to Manoah or his wife again. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering from our hands, nor would he have shown us all these things, nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. Then... The woman gave birth to a son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. Unlike every other story of the judges, this one begins differently. If you notice in verse 1, Israel is not crying out for a judge. They are not crying out to God for relief, for salvation. They are not repenting and they are not returning to Yahweh. You see, they have accepted as normal being in the hands of the Philistines. Their hearts had grown hard and cold to Yahweh, and they had embraced the gods and the culture of the Philistines. Are you familiar with the book by Christopher Marlowe, Dr. Faustus? It's an Elizabethan tragedy, and in that book, Dr. Faustus, the main character, responds to the good angel in this moment of, of, of tension and, and conflict in his life. And Dr. Faustus says these words. He says, My heart is hardened. I cannot repent. Listen to that again. My heart is hardened. I cannot repent. Church, we need to heed these words of warning. 
For there comes a time in, the life, in, the, in, the, in our lives when I will not repent. God, I'm not going to repent from that. When I will not repent becomes I cannot repent. You see, Israel had turned so far away from God, their hearts had been hardened so deeply that they no longer cried out to God for help or for repentance. They were spiritually lost. Israel was barren and fruitless. And in their spiritual barrenness and fruitlessness, they were totally and completely unaware. But praise be to God that God is a God who takes initiative. We have a God who, while we were yet sinners, sent His Son to die for us. While we were still hardened in our own sin, in our rebellion from God, God sent His Son to deliver and restore us. And at this critical junction in Israel's history, God took the initiative with a spiritless, barren people to send a deliverer by coming to a barren woman, the wife of Manoah, a family of the tribe of Dan, living in Zorah, which borders the kingdom of the Philistines in their time of conquest and dominion over Israel. And he comes to this woman, this barren woman, and says, I will bless you and grant you with a child. But it's interesting as we get into the story, in, in verses 4 and 5, what we discover is that from conception, from conception, this mother would care for her son as a, as a Nazarite. That this prayer and this crying out to God for a child would be answered and Samson would become, her son would be a Nazarite from the womb. Now in Numbers 6, chapter 6, we learn a little bit about the, what a Nazarite is. A Nazarite was a, a person, a male or a female, that was to be consecrated and devoted to God for a single purpose. And the Nazarite life was a vow. It was a life of separation from the world and from the culture in which we live. It was a time period, usually just a season of life, in which one was set apart by God as a time of preparation and of fulfilling a specific and unique purpose or mission from God. Yet notice the difference here. Samson's vow as a Nazarite was not one that would take place for a season of life, Rather, Samson was born that his life might be totally given over to God the entire life to live and to serve as a Nazarite. Samson's vow was intended from the moment of conception to the moment of death, his entire life. And in order to honor that calling, Samson's mother would also have to abide by the Nazarite life the Latin Nazarite vows, which as we read in number 6, and as some are mentioned there in this Judges chapter 13, it meant that she and Samson would, would be allowed no wine or alcohol 
No product at all. No product at all from the grape or from the vine. That no razor would touch their hair and that they would not touch a dead body or that they would not eat anything. Now, of course, modern medicine teaches the same things. The importance for expected mothers to not drink alcohol and to watch their diet. So it's interesting here that as Samson's mother is asked to fulfill this Nazarite vow to honor her child and to allow him to fulfill the Nazarite vow from the womb, that God has placed this upon her. You see, from the womb, the Lord was protecting Samson. From the womb, Samson was consecrated to serve the Lord. From the womb, life was conceived and honored even before Samson's birth. And his mother would play a tremendous role and responsibility in making sure that her son, even in the womb, honored and followed these Nazarite vows. So as we read this story, I, I think it's interesting that we see two different ways, and I don't think either way is right or wrong. They're both right, because they're both ways that we respond to the Lord. The first way that we see of responding to God is simply to trust and to believe in what we heard. It's interesting that the angel of the Lord comes to Samson's mother, to Manoah's wife, and what does she do? She doesn't question the angel. She immediately goes and tells her husband. She trusted and believed in the angel. Her trust and her belief led to her obedience in following and honoring this Nazarite vow. She never doubted. She accepted the angel's message with grace and with faith. You see, obedience is the essence of faith. Obedience is that in which we act upon when God reveals and speaks to us. Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Don't you know this, this barren woman desperately wanted a child? She, she cried out to the Lord. You can just hear her crying out. And the Lord came, and the angel of the Lord came and spoke to her. And she acted with an assurance of things hoped for. She was assured by faith. But Hebrews 11:1 1 continues, faith is also being convicted of things not seen. She was so convicted of what she had heard and what she had seen from the angel of the Lord that she consecrated her own life to not drink alcohol, anything from the vine, any product of the grape, to remain clean and not touch dead bodies, eat unclean things during that period of time. James puts it like this. He said, we're to be doers of the Word, not merely hearers alone. You see, when the mother of Samson heard this, this promise from the angel of the Lord, she responded in faith and in obedience. As we move into the New Testament, we see the example of Mary. The angel of the Lord again came to her and said, you're going to bear a child. And Mary's initial response was, well, how can this be? And as the angel shared the word of the Lord and the story of the Lord, Mary simply said, may it be done to me according to your word. Examples of those that, that hear the word of the Lord, they read the word of the Lord, and they respond, their, their spirit responds with belief and trust immediately. And they commit their lives, they consecrate their lives 
to obedience and following after that promise and that revelation. But I think Samson's dad, Manoah, offers us another perspective or another way to respond to God. You see, what was the first thing that Manoah did when his wife ran and said, Husband, Manoah, guess what? An angel of the Lord appeared to me, and, and I'm going to be pregnant. We're going to have a child. We're going to have a son. And Manoah's first word was, well, <laughs> I, I want to talk to this, this angel, right? I want to talk to this man, right? He needed a sign. He needed confirmation. His wife immediately believed. But Manoah said, Lord, send me this man. I, I have questions. Again, I think into the New Testament story after Jesus' resurrection. Thomas, the apostle, he, he, he needed confirmation. Unless I can see the, the scars in his hands, unless I can feel the imprint in his side, I, I, I won't believe. And we know the story of how Jesus came to Thomas and answered his prayer and confirmed what the others had said about Jesus. I'm so thankful that we have a God who takes seriously our doubts and our struggles to believe. Oh, there's a powerful story in Mark chapter 9. A father brings his, his muted and, and, and possessed son to Jesus, and Jesus says, all things are possible, Dad, if you'll just believe. And you can just see this father. He responds initially in, in the excitement of the moment. And he says, I believe. And then you can just see the, the, the doubt, the need for the sign and the confirmation. As soon as he says that, he says, oh, but help my unbelief. I believe. Oh, but Lord, help my unbelief. Oh, we want to believe. We want to have faith. And God comes to us and He meets us where we are. He answers our prayers. He confirms what He is stirring within our spirit and calls us to that place of obedience. As the story continues down in verse 17, Samson's mother previously in the story had said, I, I didn't ask his name and, and now Manoah has the opportunity. What's your name? What's your name to this angel of the Lord? Who is this person that has brought this message? In verse 3, it's the angel of the Lord. In verse 6, it's the man of God. Here in verse 18, he simply is called wonderful. Who is this person? What is this person's name? Who are you? Remember, as we read through the Scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, the name of a person tells so much about their character and their identity. When Manoah was asking to hear the name of this angel, he was asking to know about his character, where he came from, what was his nature. This week, we've, we've mentioned one. We, we've had two exciting births in our world this week, right? Archie was born across the sea. What's in a name? Well, Archie, I'm told, means to be genuine, bold, brave yesterday as i had the chance to visit with kelsey and blake it's holding amelia i said her middle name is rue tell me about that she said oh it's, it's a an old testament biblical name it means to be a friend of god 
Wow. To, to bless your child with, with our desire for you is that you would grow into this name. That you would become a friend of God. That your character and your nature would be such that you would be known as a friend of God. What, a, what an incredible blessing to offer to your child. Manoah said, what's your name? The angel responds back, why do you ask me my name? Translation, can't you figure it out, Mo Manoah? Don't I look wonderful? Why do you ask my name? Seeing that it is so wonderful, seeing that my nature, my character is so wonderful. Manoah, you can believe. You can believe what you've seen, what you've heard. You can believe what's stirred inside of you. Go ahead, Manoah, believe. This word wonderful can mean incomprehensible. My name is beyond understanding. It, it's so wonderful. It's so awe-inspiring. And then there's a beautiful passage here in these next couple of verses that the angel of the Lord performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. Manoah, don't, don't you get it? Don't you fully understand? Manoah, go ahead and believe. My, my name is so wonderful. And you can just see this angel of the Lord saying, my name is wonderful as he's doing these wonderful things. And the scripture tells us that as they made their offering to the Lord, that this angel of the Lord ascended into the heavens from the smoke in the midst of the smoke of the offering. And there, in that moment, it dawned on Manoah and his wife. We have seen God. This isn't just a man. It's not just an angel of the Lord. We have seen God in our midst. It's interesting, the responses of Manoah and of his wife. You see Manoah's response? We have seen God. We have seen God. We must surely die. How many of us continue today to, to have this mindset and understanding that, that, that to come in fellowship, to come to the presence of God means, means a death. Remember the story of Jacob when Jacob wrestled with God. Jacob's testimony was, I have seen God face to face, yet He has spared my life. And Manoah's wife helps us to understand. She says, no, 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 Manoah. We will not surely die. And if you'll allow me to, to kind of paraphrase and to interpret, what she goes on to say is, we will not surely die, but we will surely live. We have seen God, and we're not going to die. We're going to live. In fact, because we have seen God, we know that He's sending a Son. A Son to be a deliverer. A Son who's going to bring life to us and renew the hopes of Israel. Oh, that we could understand and hear this message even today that God loves us and He desires each of us to live eternally. God's desire for us is not death, but life. 
If the Lord desired to kill us, Manoah's wife said, He would not have shown us all these things. He would not have allowed us to hear all these things. Oh, Manoah, don't you get, we're not about to die. We're about to live because we have seen God. And how much more even today through Christ Jesus, God would not have shown us these things about His Son He would not have allowed us to hear these things about His Son and about eternity and about abundant life and about following a Lord and a Savior. He would not have allowed us to see and to hear these things if death was all that was before us. You see, God wants us to live. And surely this vision and this experience provided the determination, the faith, the courage, the strength, the patience and long-suffering that Manoah and Samson's mother must have needed as they loved and nurtured their son through the good days and through the really bad days so that he could fulfill his purpose in life. A mother's determination. Everyone in this moment, mom and dad and the Lord, everyone, those three, knew of Samson's calling. Everyone but Samson. And so as we leave the text this morning, the question that we have to ask ourselves, would Samson embrace and live out his calling to be God's deliverer? Would he embrace these Nazarite vows? You see, his mother was determined to teach and to nurture and to sacrifice for her son so that this would be. But what would Samson do? And if you'll allow me just a couple of minutes to meddle, I think there's a tremendous application for each of us today. I want to talk about a mother's determination in a post-Christian society. Here's the question that we all have to wrestle and struggle with today. Will the next generation in our families accept and embrace the faith that we have cherished and that we desire to pass on to them? What a blessing today and a few weeks ago to see eight of our children, nine of our children come and be baptized. And at this young age to say, we embrace the faith of our family. The faith that has been handed down to me. More and more of our children and grandchildren, however, are saying no to the faith that they're being handed They're leaving the faith of their parents and they're leaving parents and grandparents heartbroken, disappointed, and fearful for their children and their grandchildren. And I'm not talking about leaving this church to go to the church down the road or on the highway. I'm talking about they're leaving the church. The church of Christ. A 2014 Pew Research 
revealed that nearly one-fourth or 23% of all Americans claim no religious affiliation. That's 56 million Americans that claim to be what is commonly called the nuns. Of the nuns, 44% or 25 million of those are the millennials. That's the ages from 22 to 37. Our children are not embracing the faith of their mothers and fathers. John O'Sullivan, the former editor of the National Review, wrote and described what he calls the post-Christian. Now, we need to make a distinction between the non-Christian and the post-Christian, so allow me a couple of minutes here. A post-Christian society is not merely a society in which agnosticism or atheism is the prevailing fundamental belief of the society. Rather, a post-Christian society is a society that is rooted in the history, the culture, and the practices of Christianity, but in which the religious beliefs of Christianity have either been rejected or worse, forgotten. The Barna Research Group says that 48% of all Americans are post-Christians. Again, this doesn't mean they're non-Christian, they're post-Christians. This means that they know the stories, they know the worldview of the Bible, but they are opting out for a different worldview, a different meta-narrative in order to understand and to make sense of our world. These post-Christians have been there, done that, got the t-shirt and the CD from camp and from mission trip, but they have and are rejecting our faith. We must hear this and see this, church. Like the Israelites of Samson's time, our culture and our nation are becoming more and more spiritually barren. Our children and our grandchildren, and even we, are brokenhearted and hard-hearted. We have given ourselves over to the gods, the pleasures of our culture, just as Israel did towards the Philistines. I will not repent is quickly becoming I cannot repent. For fewer and fewer people are crying out to God and looking to return to Him. So what are we going to do? What can we do? I think this story informs and encourages us. First, we must trust that God continues to take initiative in our lives, even when our lives are spiritually barren and fruitless. And second, when we believe, we must believe what God reveals to us. And we must nurture that new life and that new expression that He desires to birth within us. We must understand that reaching non-Christians is different than reaching post-Christians. In order to reach our post-Christian family and neighbors, God must do something new within us. He must do something new within His church. The way we share and live out Jesus in this world and in our families must take on new forms. And this is the challenge that we and other churches have in what we've been calling growing young. Yes, church, don't get me wrong. We must continue to reach out to the non-Christian. But we must realize that the post-Christian will not respond to the gospel in the same way the non-Christian will. The post-Christian views the church as out of touch, as archaic, as irrelevant, unnecessary, even problematic, judgmental, and oppressive. 
They have rejected us. They have rejected our message. And they have moved on to different answers. So what must we do? We must be determined to reach the post-Christian. To love them and to nurture them and to share our lives with them. We must continue and with greater effort be and become good neighbors. And we must be faithful to share the message and the life of Christ. Manoah and Samson's mother, I believe, were faithful to this task. Samson's mother took on a life of strict discipline to birth and to raise her son. Likewise, for us to reach the post-Christian community, we too must trust and be faithful in the Lord. We must be more disciplined and obedient to the call of Christ in our lives, forsaking the gods and the practices of the Philistines in our culture. Church, we must cry out to this wonderful God of ours, asking Him to show us wonders as we seek to serve the non-Christian and the post-Christian in our families, in our community, and our world. Let's pray. Father, for this powerful story, we give thanks. And we give thanks to the story of Manoah and his, his wife and how they came to faith and belief and, and obedience and following you through a little different response. And, and I pray that today we would be encouraged because even in our own families, our own marriages, we respond differently in faith, some immediately and some praying for that sign, for that verification. And Lord, I pray that you would meet us where we are. And Father, that you would turn our hearts to what new you're doing in your kingdom, in your church. We've got Jesus. We don't, we don't need a Samson. We have Jesus. And I pray that we would live in and through him. Because we know that you, you are relevant. We know that you meet the needs of all that are, are hurting and brokenhearted. We know that you can break down and tear off the calluses of our hard-heartedness. So God, make us, form us and shape us into that church that's able to reach the one who would say they're, they're post-Christian. They, they've been there. They've done that. They don't have need for that anymore. May we take and love and share Jesus in new and deeper and more meaningful ways. Lord, that means first we must look in the mirror. We must recommit ourselves to you. And in doing so, we'll be more effective in reaching our world and family for, for you. Lord, during this time of reflection, I pray that we'd be obedient. I pray that we would respond to the stirring of your spirit. Father, that if that means coming forward and, and kneeling at the altar, that we'd be obedient to that. If it means praying with someone in our pew, if it means making a public declaration, Lord, that you would be with us. You would cause us to be obedient as we step out in faith in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing?